PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Don't know what that is? Go to LogRocket.com. Thanks. Hi, David. How's it going? Good. Is this the part where I introduce myself? (laughs) Yeah, please introduce (laughs) yourself. (laughs) Yeah. My name is David East. I'm a developer advocate at Firebase. As of April, I will have been doing the job for seven years. Actually, I think my job title changed recently. I'm a developer relations engineer. I think I've had four different job titles since doing this job, but the job has fundamentally stayed mostly the same despite the title switch shifts. But yeah, I work on Firebase. That's what I do. Seven years. Wow. So were you there before Google acquired Firebase or did you join after? I forget how many years ago that happened. I was there six months before acquisition. So I joined when I was I was number 16. It was really, really small. They had just moved into, I think it was the third office the day I interviewed. And it was just this huge, it was like half of a floor of this really big building in Soma. And I just remember like they had, they had a party the previous night and they like graffitied this wall. They had like really talented people doing it. And so it was really cool looking. But, you know, before I showed up, there was 15 people there and it was just like empty. I just remember being like, wow, this is a lot of space for not a lot of people. And they were like, I know, right? Our last one was like a closet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. So you, you must have really, I mean, seen a lot in those seven years. And it, it's been cool to watch from the outskirts and as someone who has built lots of projects on Firebase to kind of see how the the suite of tools has evolved over the years from, I think it started with like just the, the real-time database, right? And then it's kind of now evolved to like everything you need to, to build a web app. Yeah. I mean, the two startup co-founders were James Tamplin and Andrew Lee. They were building a chat widget called Involve with an E, so like Evolve, Involve. And uh, it was really, really popular on celebrities' websites. So this is like early 2010s. And so you would include this widget on the site and then like all the fans could like chat with them and that's all you would do. And the thing was really fast in real time. And what they found out a lot of their customers were doing was is they would include their widget and then they would disable the view of it and they would just listen for new chat messages, but they weren't Mm. sending messages. They were sending JSON. And so they were listening for them and then actually synchronizing like game state and like actually powering real time apps with it. And they realized that like, Oh, this is what we need to do. And so they pivoted it into Firebase. Very cool. And it seems like beyond the kind of just the database now, like I'm just on the Firebase site, in addition to like the build the site kind of divides it into like three tiers of product. There's like build, right. release and monitor, engage. So I imagine like most people are probably familiar to an extent with build. Like there's a database, authentication, I think is kind of put in that build tier and storage. And mm. now it, it seems like Firebase has kind of been uh, ingested to an extent into Google Cloud. And so you have the full suite of Google Cloud tools. I'm curious to learn a bit about release and monitor and engage because that's new functionality that I'm not as familiar with. I've never used that. So maybe you could speak a bit to kind of what that side of the tool does and what the vision is there. Yeah, I can definitely speak to a lot of that. Specifically, my job function is all within build. So I do know a lot about the release and engage and app quality and stuff like that. So I know more than most people who don't know anything would, but I'm not (laughs) just as a disclaimer, I would not consider myself an expert in those pillars, especially from the experts I know. I'm an expert through osmosis. And so this isn't like our official tagline, but I like to use this. 
there is a lot of times we have like the whole developer designer dichotomy of like, you know, mm. there's like design handoff and there are reviews and, you know, there's a lot of that. And I think that this isn't as prevalent for like every, I feel like most developers are going to have that handoff with designers, but not every developer has this with marketing. And so marketing is super important when you have, you're trying to build an app or successful business or AB testing pages. It's not just like running ads somewhere or just setting up content streams and all this stuff. Like marketing can be very like product oriented in the sense of like, how do we have great onboarding? How do we increase conversion rates? And ARPU and all the crazy stats that they have out there. And so the release and engage parts, release is more so like stability side of things. Engage is really like, how do I know that customers aren't completely churning at these steps? How do I know that this sign in button is not really working? They're not seeing it. And so we have like a product called predictions where you just include the SDK in your app. It's just for Android and iOS. And the way it works is, is it starts collecting data and then it starts surfacing data to you about users' behavior. And it's been able to tell you like, hey, this user, they really like your app and they like to spend in these ways. So if you give them discounts, that'll be good for both of you because they want to spend on your app and you want them to. So make it easy for them to do that. Give them a discount or something like that. So they kind of give you like signals or like, hey, this person, they don't like this. They hate all of this. They don't like all the ad interstitials maybe turn those off or this level's too hard, maybe decrease spawn rates or something like that. So it doesn't get that specific where it's like, hey, decrease spawn rates, but like it shows you that like, hey, this isn't working well over here. And so then you kind of take that inference of like, oh, I bet you that level's too hard or I bet you our signup flow asks for way too much. So that's really it. So a lot of that is like, it's that handoff between developers and marketers where like, I'm not a marketer, but I've worked with a lot of really great ones. And I want to be a better designer. And so when I learn design, I learn how much I don't know. And since I don't know anything about marketing, I can only imagine all the things I don't know. And then same with business development. And so having a software developer to be able to implement the tools and implement the processes, but having someone who's really good with business development or product strategy or marketing on that other side, that's really a big part of the uh, engage tools. And I'm curious, does that predictions tool integrate with like the A-B testing functionality? Like, can it help you understand why one A-B testing variant that that you're running might work better than another? Or like, is that kind of functionality on, on the roadmap? I am not aware off the top of my head if predictions and A-B testing... One of the things we do is we have like integrations like remote config. I call it our key value store with superpowers. So, you know, it's like conditionally serves things. You can hook it up to any analytics provider, but we have really seamless integration with Google Analytics. And so you can see like, hey, if if this user comes from this area, do this, or if this thing happens, do that. We call them user properties. You can sort of tag users with user properties. So like super user or like hates ads or stuff like that. And then that way, remote config can sense that and serve something else up. And so remote config has a key and then it doesn't necessarily have a value, but it has parameters and then parameters have conditions and then you can have different values based upon those conditions. And so that really started out with a lot of people who did that to, it was really common for native app developers, Android and iOS to not have to republish because there was like a typo on a page or something. They were like, oh, we'll just update that remote config or we'll just retheme, we'll store the theme of the app so we don't have to, to resubmit 
for app review. And then it's really evolved into people really doing it for, like we're saying, like business development with A-B testing and seeing how successful things are. And, and now feature flagging is another really big part of that as well. And I'm curious on the build side, which you mentioned is kind of where a lot of the time you focus on. What is the pitch for in 2021 in an increasingly crowded landscape of tools designed to make it easy to launch full stack web applications with all of the kind of primitives you need, like storage and database and auth and functions? You know, what's the pitch for like, why go with Firebase today? What does Firebase do best or what type of apps is it best suited for? Yeah, I mean, the pitch is a lot similar than it was even back when I started in 2014. We were always very big on the five-minute getting started experience. So we were like, hey, can someone, when they get on this page, can they go through our steps and have that moment of wow when you saw like the data changing and flickering between the our console and the, or, you know our, our dashboard and then in the, within your web app. And so once you saw that connection, people were like, wow, that is really cool. And then people really start feeling the magic and start thinking all the things they can do. And that's kind of permeates through a lot of our services because we're like, okay, we want to be able to get people going fast. And then what we did over time to build upon that is, is a lot of people would be like, oh, I want to use Firebase. It'll be so great for a prototype. But as soon as I need to do something serious, I'll need to go lift and shift or I'll have to get super systems architecty on myself. And we were like, well, how do we make that easier that your prototype code isn't actually like throwaway, that you're building to get on it? And we've had like really crazy cool stories of like really large companies who have difficult like uh, release processes. And so they're like, oh, to spin up this system, it's going to take like a handful of headcount and this many weeks or months even, and then go through this release process. And so they, a lot of times they'll come to us because they're like, we have to build this thing for this event. So there's a big sports game or a big, you know, cultural event going on and we have to have it done. And we, this is really big impact for us. So we're going to use you to build all of this and then we'll finish it in two weeks. And it scales, it's fast, and it did a bunch of things that we didn't have to build ourselves and then therefore maintain these systems ourselves years going on afterwards. So that's really been the pitch is that you can just build really, really fast and then you don't have to worry about the actual like scale of traffic and everything hitting your app. One of the products we've talked about in the past on the podcast is like Superbase, which is kind of pitching themselves as an open source version of Firebase, building on open source tools for each part of the application stack. And I'm curious, like, is open source at all part of Firebase's future roadmap or plans or kind of how you coach developers thinking around whether or not they need to go with an open source tool to build their app on? Yeah, so like our hosted services themselves, yes, those are like our database and stuff are proprietary, but we try to open source as much as our tooling as we possibly can. This has been, you know, a big debate since early days. We had lots of people in the early Firebase days ask, hey, can we just get something on premise? And it wasn't so much like in the early days, the, the problem wasn't like, oh, if we give them on premise, like a lot of people were offering us up a lot of money in the early days to do that. But the maintenance for that early on was just going to be crazy to be like, oh, what version is it on on your machine to like provide support? And when it was 16 of us, that was just unreal. So we always wanted to provide open sourcing for our tooling. So like our, I want to say all of our SDKs, I know all of our web SDKs now are open source and most, if not all of our Android and iOS SDKs are open source. So like you can go to, we have a huge GitHub presence. My setup as a Googler is different than most people's setup. 
most people like work within Google three, our internal system. I don't, I just work purely within GitHub every single day. So anytime I have to do something in Google three, I have to go to like a cheat sheet and I'm, hmm. how does this work? And like map it to whatever I do in Git. <laughs> so I work purely in open source. Like we have a whole emulator suite that allows you to run real-time database, authentication, Firestore, Cloud Functions, PubSub. I feel like I'm missing one too. And so you run all these things locally and you just run it through our CLI tool, which is also open source and the emulators themselves are open source. So you can see a lot of what we're doing in there. And also the SDKs themselves aren't just like little REST APIs, like our REST wrappers, our Firestore and real-time database SDKs are incredibly complex. Cloud Firestore can do offline persistence. So if your you know goes offline, the app can continue working as it would be online. And you don't actually have to write like conditional code for that being like if online, do these operations, else you know, do this. Like it's all, all just works behind the scenes. It does uh, a fancy term called latency compensation, which effectively raises events locally first. So everything feels really, really snappy, even if your connection starts dropping. There's so much you can read and see within these open source SDKs that is extremely complicated. So it's not just like we put out the, oh yeah, see how we wrap the fetch API. It was really cool. Like, no, there's there's a lot of complexity that we have that's all open source. Yeah, David. So I'm curious about, we kind of touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but I'm curious your thoughts on development and design. I know we talked a little bit about this in the pre-interview, but uh, I'm just curious, kind of what are your initial thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I think it's super cool. I A lot of my colleagues and I talk about this a lot. I think it's really interesting nowadays that uh, interesting is actually such a, I don't want to say interesting because interesting can be sometimes people say that's really interesting. And they really mean is they're like, it's not interesting. It's actually annoying. Um, so I want to use the right words here. I really do think it's interesting. Like I, I find it awesome how when I first started developing I really was awed by people who created such amazing designs. Like I remember seeing like parallax effects when they first came out, came out like scrolling through pages and just being my mind blown being like, what is going on? And then when you see a really well-designed page, you're just like, that is awesome. And I couldn't do it for the life of me. And I remember like working with people and there's always this argument of like, can design be taught? Or do you just have to have it? And like part of me just wondered, like, I guess maybe you just do have to have it. And what I like about nowadays is is that so many tools out there exist that introduce you to design. The first one that really was prevalent for me was Sketch. Like I used to try to do things in Photoshop and I was just like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like this, I'm hurting myself. (laughs) It was all painful for me. It was too much. But then when I did things in Sketch, it just kind of came naturally. And it introduced me to the world of design in a way where I could just iterate and iterate until I found something that looked right. And then when I started taking design courses, which so much more nowadays exist, I learned that like that's actually most of design is just iterating until you get it right. And so what I think it's really interesting now is, is that as a front end developer, I don't really feel like there's any of those questions anymore of like, hey, can design be learned? Can it be taught? It's like, no, you can you can do this. And then we have all these amazing tools that expose us to these environments that unlike ever before, and it's across all pages, like in the terms of like Firebase, you could be a designer and you could say like, you know what, I'm going to learn some code. I'm going to build an app, write the actual code, connect to some system, and then you're exposed to Firebase and you're writing Node on Cloud Functions. And then 
before you know it, in five years, you're a back-end developer somewhere because you didn't have to worry about all the stuff that it took to get started, which used to be the case five years ago, 10 years ago. It's not that you need a degree, but it's like, you got to read the thick manual and then right. Hello World <laughs> works. Right. And I think it's amazing that we just have all of this exposure to learn these things nowadays. Yeah, you mentioned having to like read the manual. So there, so there is an argument like the purists out there would say there is steps to go to get to building an app. And I guess, do you see that side? I think it's just one of those things where like context is everything. Because I think there is, so like, I like don't agree with that at heart, but I always am like that in practice. So like, I don't (laughs) think that you have to like learn everything that you can cowboy it and just like kind of go in. And then there's so (laughs) much to take away from that. And I've done that before, but like, I'm the type of person that when I go through a course, I literally bring out a composition notebook and I write almost everything that's being said. A lot of that's just because my it's the only way my brain will remember it because I don't actually go back and look at those pages afterwards. Right. <laughs> so I do go through everything meticulously because that's just like, I'm afraid of missing things, but I don't think it's necessary. Like I do think that if you feel inspired or you feel just motivated to like get your hands on the keyboard and turning your keystrokes into pixels into experiences is also an extremely amazing way to go. So I think that you should just do what is working for you because we all as humans just learn and experience things so differently. So don't get dissuaded because someone's like, I'm sorry, you didn't read the whole manual or you don't have yeah. a degree <laughs> on this. Like, no, like if it's working for you, just keep going. Sometimes I'll be midway through writing all this stuff out and I'm like, ah, I've written any code in like four days on this subject because I'm just <laughs> writing words. There's a meme that was going around Twitter and it's like the kid stepping over the stairs. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like, the first stair is like JavaScript. And then like the next one is like, uh, I forgot. And then it's like React. And he's like just stepping over the two, first oh, two. I did see that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't always feel like that's totally the truth though, because yeah, I saw a lot of people had reactions to that. So like I learned a lot of backend code first. So like in school, we all wrote like Java. And actually I spent most of my time writing this in this programming language called Ada, which is like not very commonly used. It was super used by the Department of Defense back in the day. Like it's a programming language that had popularity because it won a contest by the Department of Defense because they had like something like 300 programming languages being used internally. And they were like, this this ends now. We need one. And so they held a contest and Ada won. And I I think it's still used by a lot of like mission critical systems. And so I didn't write a lot of JavaScript until almost like my senior year. And then when I got into my internships and into my uh, like full-time job, the way I got anything done was with jQuery. I learned so much through jQuery. And then I kind of was like, I feel like just calling slide up is probably hiding a lot. And I was like, and I'm probably could really make this bad. And so I'd look like, well, how do you write this slide up functionality? And so I learned a ton from jQuery, not even just going through the source, because I don't think I ever did that to a huge degree, but just by asking myself like, well, what am I getting out of this? And I think React does that so much. And I think that also front-end frameworks have really taught us like how to think about state management, which is not something that a lot of people really thought about before. Because when you have a full page refresh and traditional web app development, you don't have to worry about state management. 
But I don't even think when you started that, that term was even prevalent. They're like, things just aren't consistent. Or like, this says four over here and it should say seven. And you didn't know why. Right. And then I think the term state management, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's the one we'll go with. So yeah, I don't know. I think that you can skip around as much as you want, as long as you're asking yourself the questions of like, what does this provide me? Like, what am I getting at? I appreciate what it's doing for you. Yeah. And I'd be curious, what do you think the future will look like if front end and design maybe kind of blend together more, I guess? Who handles middleware? Who handles backend? What are your thoughts on that? I feel like it's going to happen in a different approach than we realize, because I think everyone's kind of waiting for like the Figma sketch export to React components, and then somehow it all magic, and then I can wire up the interactions. Like Framer is a really cool example of this. You know, I guess it's the no code or low code approach. And I think that those tools, there is a lot of feature in them, but I also feel like they're always going to be additive or they're going to augment the way you write, like maybe get you started or maybe control a lot of presentational components. But I see basically, however those tools come together, you're going to have people who are more so on the, oh, let me make sure this is the right you know, HSL color. Let me make sure that this has enough spacing and it's aligned properly. That designer is also going to be like, um, I think I can just write the CSS for that because I'm being exposed because these tools are spitting out the CSS to me over and over again. And I actually understand Flexbox because all these tools follow Flexbox behind the scenes. So as I start to write the syntax, I start realizing that I know these things. And I feel like it's the same thing for developers. They're going to be like, you know what? These design tools are really telling me to space out this stuff. And I feel like my UI is a little too scrunched in. So I should have consistent spacing. And that's like one of the most big faux pas that people who are learning design kind of start seeing is they have inconsistent spacing throughout their whole apps. Tailwind CSS is a really great example of this. And I think a lot of people like Tailwind, not because they get to stay in their HTML file, which is very cool. But I think a lot of people like that they have these like atomic units of design in there. So it's like I have the spacing scale for my REMs that go up. And then also I have a ways for things to shrink down properly and, and everything's consistent. And so as long as I'm using Tailwind spacing units, for the most part, you know, you still have to have a good eye for it, but for the most part, things are going to kind of click into place. And I think mm. that's what Tailwind gives a lot of people. They give this sense they had about design and consistency materializes in these little units. And that's another great example of a tool that I think is helping developers become designers the same way that like Figma has helped designers become developers. Yeah, it's actually um, interesting. We just had one of our developers was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about, it's called Different Flavors of Front End. And he wears the design hat at LogRocket or did for the first little bit, and then was also a front end engineer. So yeah, I think that's interesting. I'd be curious your thoughts on the article from Chris Coyer, The Great Divide. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah. Yes, it's a great article. It's like two front-end developers walk into a bar and they don't have anything to say to each other. (laughs) (laughs) No, this this is really true. I've worked in this capacity before where I worked on the Firestore console, uh, as we call it, so like the data viewer in our Firebase dashboard. And it's a really complicated piece of front end because it has to visualize and have you interact and edit all of this data that can be updating in real time. And then we have to give you visual indications of that. You can be able to scroll through things and search and find things. So it's like a lot of the bottlenecking really hard problems of front end development 
were really shown there. And so it was a really, really challenging, but really fun project. And I worked with a bunch of engineers who were really, really good on that. And it was interesting how we worked heavily on state management systems, on making sure, like I actually, I remember one day I introduced code that one of our testers was like, hey, the data takes like only on this one thing, it takes like over a minute to load. And I'm like, what? That can't be the case because I load up on mine and it didn't take a minute. Turns out the way I was running animations was locking frames per row. And so like if you had less than a thousand, it didn't really like it didn't really add up, but then it would get like exponentially larger after that. So it'd lock up forever. <laughs> and like <laughs> I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> so I learned a lot about animation doing that. But then also like I learned a ton about actual like Bezier curves of making sure like flickered in right. And we worked with a lot of design teams that were like, okay, no, it's gotta, gotta pop in like this and actually drawing out curves onto screens and looking at sizings of things. That was the one project where I really, really learned about spacing. And there was just so much I learned because I felt like I was writing virtual scroll lists to make sure data was good. And that there's like, you're not even worried about pixels when you're writing those things. Everything's very abstract in the UI for those. But then you would get into to sprints where it was just all like, okay, well, this has to be consistent. So I spent time doing both of those roles and it was incredibly difficult to switch your brains from those perspectives. And I felt like I was never good enough at either one. So I don't know what it will look like in the future, but it is very true that there are front end engineering is truly just that it is so much of an engineering role. And in whether it is you're figuring out layouts in CSS or whether you are figuring out a virtual scroll list, it's just interesting. I, I've never experienced, I used to work heavily on the back end and things, at least in the apps I worked on then felt very like, okay, this is how we spin up an app. And on front end, I can almost feel paralyzed <laughs> with like all the choices yeah. I have. <laughs> so David, outside of, you know, kind of this like design front end paradigm along with Firebase, maybe what are you most excited about in web development in 2021? Yeah, I have, I guess, two things. I'm going to go with the first one because it feels less cliche. Uh, so I'm really <laughs> excited about JavaScript modules because they've been around for at least the idea and, and we've sort of used them within like, you know, context of Webpack and Rollup and whatnot. But what I'm really excited is, is that it feels like we're getting very good at them in terms of the way we write our code in terms of modules, because looking at the way we used to write our code for libraries, you know, like if you wanted to use jQuery, you would have to include jQuery script and then it would be tacked onto window.jQuery. And then that was just sort of the way you consumed any library. And then so you had all these window imports to consume in some other script. And it was kind of like, where is everything coming from? And, you know, how many versions of jQuery am I including? And <laughs> what I like about JavaScript modules moving forward is, is that we get to write our code in a very modular way way. Actually, their native support is fantastic. I think it's like 92, 95%. It's pretty much waiting on IE. And so you could use it natively in the browser, but actually I'm less so excited about that and more so excited about tree shaking from modules and us getting smarter about the way we're writing our code, at least in terms of library code to be consumed from developers. And I've seen firsthand in a lot of libraries I've worked on 
people realize, oh, instead of just tacking it onto this class or onto this namespace, I can just write this individual function and I can turn it into this like pipeline way. And then all of a sudden, a library that was 100 kilobytes can drop down to, you know, 20, 15 even, depending on what you're using, because we just sort of package everything together. And then we say like, well, here's the library, everything's here. And then now we're giving people sort of the import as you use approach. And I've seen that like light bulb moment happen for many people. So it's it's really exciting because it's like a big win for web performance, a big win for just like developer experience across like all libraries. So that's one thing I'm, I'm excited about. Awesome. Well, David, it's been great to have you. Thanks for coming on Pod Rocket, and we'll see you around. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, thanks for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, Email me if you want, even though none of you do. Go to logrocket.com and try it out. It's free to try. Then it costs money. But yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.